Hello, friends. Dave Bjork here, lung cancer survivor, patient advocate, and yes, I'm the research evangelist. And welcome to the Research Evangelist podcast, as always, coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. You know, the Greek meaning of evangelist is bringing the good news, and I like to think that I'm bringing the good news in cancer research and care by interviewing people in life sciences that are doing amazing work. I call them brilliant but not famous. And well, the not famous part is ironic because they're all well-known and respected in their field by their peers and in the communities that they serve. But my next door neighbor might not recognize their name, Uh, but they really are brilliant and committed to their work. And I love meeting these amazing people and sharing a little bit about them and the work they're doing. And I believe in serendipity. So I hope that positive things come from sharing their stories with you and to the universe. So today I'm super excited to have uh, Dr. Eric Grogan uh, on the program. Dr. Grogan is Associate Professor of Thoracic Surgery Vice Chairman of Research and Associate Professor of Medicine and Section Chief of Thoracic Surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Dr. Grogan graduated summa cum laude from Lipscomb University in Nashville. He received his medical degree with honors from Vanderbilt uh, University. And after completing general uh, surgery internship and residency at Vanderbilt, Dr. Grogan continued his cardiothoracic surgery training at the University of Virginia, where he was the Minimally Invasive Thoracic Fellow. During his surgical training, he also obtained a master's in public health from Vanderbilt, focusing on surgical outcomes, research, and quality improvement. Awesome. So I'm super excited to have you on the show, and welcome to the show, uh, uh, Dr. Grogan. Thank you for having me. Awesome. And so we met in Nashville um, at one of the White Ribbon Building Projects with uh, a crew from Vanderbilt and from Sarah Cannon. Uh, and uh, led by Christine Lovely. It was an awesome day. Uh, but I'd like to start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you were, you were born in Charlottesville, uh, Virginia, and you grew up in uh, Paducah, Kentucky. Did I say that right? That's correct. Yes. Awesome. Sir. Okay. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about the young Eric Grogan. Sure. So um, my family, uh, I'm the first generation to actually not grow up on a farm. Uh, my whole family is from rural West Kentucky and rural West Tennessee. And um, so my journey here is, uh, is, it really comes from a a love of education from my uh, grandparents. My uh, grandmother uh, lived in, um, lived in Kentucky and was one of the few women in that day to have obtained part of a college education and so her and her husband were both school teachers and farmers. Um, and then that, that was on my, my dad's side of the family and my mom's side of the family. My grandfather was actually a very smart man, um, all, although you wouldn't have known it by his occupation, but he was um, a farmer as, and a postman. Uh, but he, um, when, his, when he was 16 years old, his father died. He was going to go off to actually to preaching school back in those days. If you were smart, you went to preaching school. Uh, You're either a preacher, a doctor, or a lawyer. And so he wanted to be a preacher. Uh, But that didn't work out for him because when he was 16 years old, his his father died suddenly from diabetes, and he had a sister and a mom, so he had to take over the farm. He worked two jobs full-time as a full-time postman and as a full-time farmer uh, and put all three of his kids through college because that was the most important thing for him. And so my mom uh, actually was a teacher as well. And uh, so I have a lot of teaching background in my family. My father uh, went to always wanted to be a surgeon. And so that's why I was born in Charlotte. Yes. Well, I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia. It's because he was doing his general surgery training there. 
And so then he spent some time in the military, but ultimately went back and practiced in Paducah, Kentucky as a general surgeon for many years and retired uh, four or five years ago. So I grew up always wanting to be a surgeon. I actually never wanted to be anything else. Um, I actually still love the outdoors. I love farms and being outside a lot, but, but I really wanted to be a surgeon. Um, and so I came to Lipscomb actually on tennis scholarship and did pre-med there uh, and then ended up staying and doing some research at Vanderbilt and then getting into Vanderbilt Medical School. And, and since that time, I've actually uh, developed a passion for doing research. I started that in undergrad um, and then continued that in, in my training uh, as, as a surgery resident for really trying to advance the field. That's ultimately why I did not go back to Kentucky to practice with my father who had a great practice there because I wanted to, to impact the fields uh, that we work in uh, with the research that we do. And so ultimately settled in cardiothoracic surgery and lung cancer and have been working in that field uh, for really 50, about 15 years now in particular through my fellowship and then, and then here on faculty. That's oh, so thanks for sharing. I, I'm going to ask you about your research. Um, but I also, before that, I wanted to ask, like, how did, how did you end up uh, in the lung cancer uh, community? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, actually, <clears throat> I don't know exactly why I was drawn to that. Um, and maybe, um, maybe it was sort of my, um, my desire to uh, take care of people in a field that, at that, and I think the st stigma has changed a bit, but certainly, 15 years ago, when I started into this, people would say, why, why do you do that? I mean, everybody who gets lung cancer dies um, and everybody who has lung cancer did it to themselves. Well, I mean, I grew up in, you know, all my friends actually grew up, you know, um, suckering tobacco and, and, you know, part of the tobacco industry. We actually have a tobacco barn that was on our family farm that was that my, you know, my grandparents raised tobacco and, and, and did that. So that was sort of part of our culture. And so I don't know what it was about me that kind of wanted to, to take that on to take a difficult field uh, where people were often perceived as a disease of self abuse and try to change that stigma and change the research in that area. I, I really felt that lung cancer was about 15 to 20, 20 years behind all the other major cancers, although it was the number one killer, uh, that it needed, it needed people in this field that were willing to tackle a common problem that didn't seem to have an easy solution and try to move the bar over time. And so that's why I, I don't know how that all kind of settled out to be where it is, but that's where I really, I really enjoyed the technical operations that that lung cancer. If you have a lobectomy, that requires somebody that's um, that is technically adept to be able to do those procedures, and I enjoyed that component of the operations. I enjoyed the intensity required to be a cardiothoracic surgeon, and then I really enjoyed the, the the whole field. and I thought it was wide open for for people to be able to make a difference in the research uh, arena. Uh, and so that's ultimately what brought me back to Vanderbilt was to, to be able to be in an environment where I could do all of those things and uh, both do complicated lung and chest surgery, as well as do research with very bright people, uh, which is, you know, what I've been very blessed to be a part of even all the way to today. Yeah, it sounds like, so you have your path, you know, you had the, the, the sort of the mentorship or sort of looking up to your dad as a surgeon and having a very uh, successful practice in Kentucky, uh, but you going down the road of thoracic 
uh, surgery at Vanderbilt. So you, you guys are both having an impact. So I think that's, I think that's great. I'd like to ask you about, because people know that I had a lobectomy and mine was in uh, 1999, actually. So it was over 20 years ago. Right. Uh, Doug, Doug Matisse did my surgery, Mass General. Yeah. You probably know that name. I know um, that name. You probably got a big incision. <laughs> I have a huge incision. And the reason I bring it up is because I know you perform VATS lobectomy. Is that, is that how you said VATS or is it VATS? Yeah. So, so that um, I was intrigued by the, um, by where the field of lung cancer surgery was when I started my training. Actually, in my general surgery training, had a big emphasis in minimally invasive surgery, did a lot of uh, laparoscopic surgery at that time. Uh, when I was kind of, you know, doing my practicing and did some of those, those and worked with a, a surgeon here named Mike Holtzman and Bill Richards, who were some of the real leaders in, in, in minimally invasive surgery. And so when I chose to do my fellowship, I chose to go work at a place, uh, a guy named Dr. David Jones, who's actually up at Memorial and uh, head, heads the thoracic surgery service at, at Memorial on Kettering. He was doing a lot of minimally invasive fats lobectomies at that time. And so I went there to train to do that and did a lot of minimally invasive work and really enjoyed kind of blending the fields of minimally invasive surgery with maximally invasive surgeries to try to improve the, the operations uh, that, that we did in that way. And, uh, and then ultimately, I actually have transitioned in the last several years to the robotic approach, uh, the robotic minimally invasive platform. They're fairly interchangeable, but um, that technology has sort of come up, uh, I think, and advanced things. And so I've been able to see the field. Uh, really <clears throat> move. I, I hope that I've been able to be a part of helping that move and train the next people to be able to do this, but move to a much more minimally invasive approach. Whereas, you know, like you said, you had a lobectomy and uh, you had a big, in, big thoracotomy and it took you know months to recover from that, to, to being able to move that down to being able to do both diagnostic procedures with determining, you know, making a diagnosis of lung cancer and then also treating them in a much less invasive way where people can you know, get out of the hospital in two to four days. And uh, it has some, it does have an impact on their health. There's no question about that, but a much less invasive and much quicker return to recovery uh, compared to where we were 15, 20 years ago. And that, that's been, I mean, that's been a lot of fun. Um, it's, it's kept me energized with regard to being able to learn new techniques uh, and then really trying to figure out uh, how to teach those techniques to the cardiothoracic fellows that we're responsible for training. That's a big portion of what, uh, what I really enjoy doing is actually training um, the cardiothoracic fellows and the general surgery residents to do some of the minimally invasive uh, thoracic surgery work. And I've, I've dedicated myself to that side of things as opposed to going down the heart. I don't do any heart surgery. I've just, we just focus on here in our practice on general thoracic and then lung and uh, lung failure and that sort of, and I do some esophageal cancer stuff too, but really moving in that minimally invasive thoracic uh, uh, field. Yeah. It's amazing how much things have changed. And I've, you know, from both the surgical side, as well as the, you know, oncology, uh, oncologist side where these targeted <laughs> treatments and immunotherapy and, and advancements in surgery, it's amazing how much has changed in the lung cancer world uh, since, since I was sick years ago. Well, and I, I actually think that the, from a, just a, a hope standpoint and a um, and a, and the ability to diagnose and treat it early, it, it, the, the major impact that I have seen is actually lung cancer screening. 
I mean, all those other things are downstream effects in many respects, and, and they're all incremental advances that have occurred in all the surgical fields that have also filtered out into thoracic surgery. So the, the whole field of surgery has got has improved as our technology has improved uh, and our ability to treat people uh, has. But from a hope perspective, you know, 10 years ago, we or maybe 10, 12 years ago, we didn't have a lot to offer people because if you got a, if you got lucky and got your diagnosis early, and then when I say got lucky, I'm not kidding, like literally got lucky and they found it early, then you could get a, a you know a curative treatment. Well, now we can actually offer you know lung cancer screening programs, much like we're colorectal surgery, you know breast surgery, all the other sort of major, you know the major prostate, the, all the major fields have some sort of screening mechanism by which, if we find it early, then we can cure it and cure it surgically usually. Um, and, and treat earlier stage disease. And so that that has given the whole field of lung cancer a lot of hope. Um, it's brought challenges with regard to what we do with, you know, with, you know, with added findings that we might find or, or, or being able to figure out how we, you know, get those screening technologies actually implemented uh, equitably to all people. Um, and so there have been challenges, obviously, there, but now at least we have the option to be able to do that where we didn't have that option uh, 10 years ago. And so that's brought a lot of hope. I mean, obviously, with the targeted therapies and the medical side of things, that that's a whole another area that, to be quite frank, we're still we're still a decade behind most of the other cancers. But at least now we have hope for patients who then have metastatic disease. They can then find targeted potentially for them. They can have targeted therapies that can really turn this into a chronic disease, much like melanoma. I mean, 20 years ago, melanoma was a death. You know, in stage melanoma was a death sentence too. And now that's no longer the case. Now it's a bit more of a chronic disease and, and you know, different therapies and different hopes. And, and lung cancer has learned and benefited from a lot of the other fields. So I've rambled a bit, but I've, I've no, it's totally true. And lung cancer screening is something I care a lot, a lot about. So uh, I, I think we all know that the earlier we can catch lung cancer, you have better chances. I, I was, mine was caught early. I had pneumonia. So thankfully I, my lung cancer was caught in an early stage. So uh, mine was curative. Um, and so you, you bring up early detection and your current research focuses on early detection and optimal therapy for patients with lung cancer. And I, you have a recent publication. I'd love to have you tell us about that. Sure. So I, I've been very blessed that my mentor, when I started in this field and I, I I'm actually sitting in his lab today, so I can't go without acknowledging, without acknowledging <laughs> that is, is Pierre Massillon and, and Pierre. Um, when I first started, Actually, before I was hired at Vanderbilt, when I was in the process, he was one of the people that helped recruit me. And then in the process of recruiting me, he helped really help me get set up uh, for starting a research program, uh, along with my the person who hired me, a guy named Bill Putnam, who was a, um, who's one of the uh, one of the leaders in our thoracic surgical field, was at MD Anderson for a long time, started our department. And so the two of them helped recruit me and with the vision of being able to start the thoracic surgery research program in lung cancer. And so Pierre really was that, that individual who provided the infrastructure in the core. I mean, he's probably, he was seven, eight, eight years older than me, uh, eight or nine years older than me. So he was about a, you know, a decade uh, farther ahead and had really, you know, a lot of the infrastructure and research. And he was, he was laser focused on helping to develop biomarkers for blood-based biomarkers for lung cancer. And so he would develop them, and then my expertise at that time was, and things have evolved, obviously, but my expertise at that time was then, then doing the, the validation component in different populations to see how it worked in, in, in different populations. So I had an epidemiology 
research partner, Steve Deppen. And so we would, we would test out Pierre's, you know, new, 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 new tools in different populations to see how they work. Obviously our things have really continued to evolve and Pierre then got a large grant for the validation center with the early detection uh, research network with the National Cancer Institute, which supported a lot of the work here in both developing and validating biomarkers. And one of the exciting ones that uh, that has been really a part of our research program for uh, for the last several years uh, is is a high sensitivity CIFRA assay. And so CIFRA has been around for a long time. It's a uh, it's a, it's a um, it's a fragment that you can measure, but the assays for it have not been sensitive enough to make it extremely useful for lung cancer. And there's a chemist over at um, at uh, at Vanderbilt Menus University campus named Daryl Bornhop, and so he had developed this high sensitivity assay uh, that you could boost the sensitivity of different compounds. And so his graduate student Michael Comer, and I tell you this story because people need to understand that the publication that I'm talking about has been a decade in evolution. Uh, and has been the result of, of many scientists coming together from many different disciplines and fields to be able to, to put something like this together. And really, this, is, this has been the, the, the component of Pierre's work uh, that I'm highlighting that, that I've been a peripheral component of, but he has been a lot of the driver for this. So I don't want to take any credit away from him and honor him in this process. And so Michael uh, Comer did his PhD in, um, in actually biomedical engineering and worked in Pierre Massillon's lab and Dara Bornhop's lab to take this assay and the CIFRA assay and bring it into the clinical environment. And so that's actually what has happened. Uh, Michael is now one of our postdocs and we're trying to figure out how to hire him on faculty as well. And he's the lead author for this publication that, that many of us are on. And what this publication, which is, um, it's come out of American Journal of Respiratory uh, Critical Care, um, has has done is it's combined um, three major pieces uh, to really improve the accuracy of lung cancer uh, diagnosis. So if you have somebody that has a lung nodule, you don't know what it is, uh, you can either watch it, you can do a bunch of invasive tests, you can send somebody to surgery. If you kind of fall in this middle zone where you're, you don't feel comfortable watching it and it's not de definitively cancer, you kind of there's a lot of things you can do. You can do PET scans, you can do biopsies, you can do surgery, and it's, it's very difficult to kind of manage these people, or you can delay things. And so we're always trying not to over-treat people. We're not, not trying not to hurt people and do too much, but we're also trying not to miss lung cancers. And so that group of people is the ones that we struggle with on, on the clinical side. And so Michael focused on that group of people, and he got a large group of people from Vanderbilt, a large group of people from, uh, from Pittsburgh, and from uh, from Denver, as well as this other study called DCAMP, which is a national study, and did the blood test on people, the CIFRA assay that I'm talking about. And we also did what's called radiomics, which is a, um, a technique that you can use uh, computers to analyze the nodule in three dimensions and do a better job of characterizing whether it's cancer or not cancer, combining that along with their clinical factors. So, you know, their age, their smoking status, uh, this, the, their, you know, their history of cancer and those sorts of things. And what we showed is that we can, if you combine those things together, then you can improve the accuracy of the diagnosis of lung cancer in a much less invasive way. And so that's actually very exciting. And so what we've done with that is that we then, uh, Pierre proposed with several of us, a clinical trial. And that's actually what we're, what the, that's the result and the fruits of this labor is that we're actually going to be testing this prospectively in patients. We're in the process of 
getting the assay certified, getting the FDA to approve this process. So it's actually a long process to actually be able to start the clinical trial. But we're hopeful that by the by the time we get into the late spring, that we'll be enrolling patients using this this combined biomarker strategy uh, for people at four different institutions. So that's the exciting piece. Is that now we, you know, if you do years and years, and people spend their time in the chemistry labs and and you know going through radiology and developing these complex computer algorithms to look at nodules and all these things, then can come together to be able to hopefully improve the accuracy of the diagnosis of lung cancer in a less invasive way. And so Michael's uh, been a, a really phenomenal scientist. Uh, you know, he's, he's, he's not a clinician, but I'm not a Michael. So it takes a, a really a true multidisciplinary team to be able to come up with these things uh, to be able to really improve, improve uh, the overall uh, ability to, to, to diagnose lung cancer early and, and accurately. Wow. That's so exciting. That is so exciting. Cause that's really, you know, the area that we need to focus on is that early detection. And that's, and that confusion of, you know, when you, if you have a nodule and what do you do and, and particularly for primary care doctors, you know, I think it's gotta be so challenging for them to, to you know, to, 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 to know what to do because there's so many different, you, you mentioned all these different options, but that's super exciting, Eric. And I, uh, you pointed a couple of things too, that are exciting to me is that you mentioned it's a decade worth of work and the collaboration. I saw the number of people on the publication. There was a lot of names on there. And so uh, people should understand the amount of work that it takes to get where we are. But that's why I also believe as a research evangelist that we need to continue to support research so that we can get things to, to, to where you're at right now. Right. Cause that doesn't just that's happen. Exactly right. I mean, it, you're right. It doesn't just happen. And it takes, um, it actually takes a lot of money too. And I, I mean, I'm, I, I don't like actually talking about money because I'm not a I, I, I consider myself a physician and scientist. And so money, money is a, a necessary evil. Uh, but if you don't if you don't have a you know, you don't have a margin, you don't have a mission when it comes to research. And so I'm, I'm becoming less and less ashamed to ask people for for help in this field, because with if we don't have we don't have that's and if we don't have people with funds, then we don't have research. And that that. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to cast a negative light on, on the breast cancer field. I, I only cast this in a positive way, but the reason that breast cancer is two decades ahead of lung cancer research is because they've had very, very good advocates. They've had very, very good fundraising and they've put a lot of money into research and they still, they still have the highest number of you know, clinical trials that are ongoing and of publications in those spaces. And so they have people that are advocating on the Hill for money to come, to come down, uh, to be able to do the, the research and, and lung cancer is the number one killer. And as I said before, it's been perceived as a disease of self-abuse, although that's, I don't necessarily, I don't believe that. Um, but, and it's been fatal. And so when 75% of your people die within two years who get the disease, there are not a lot of people to be able to march uh, for, for, for federal funds to be able to go into this and private funds are, are equally as important as federal funds. Uh, but, but the big grants that drive these things are typically federal funds, uh, because it's a renewable resource. Um, and it's, it's, it's the scientific process that actually makes all this work better. And, and the, the, and the, the national cancer institutes have been hugely supportive of this. I mean, if you, all the infrastructure grants, all the major infrastructure grants that have occurred at Vanderbilt over the last 20 years with regard to a, the SPORE grants that started in the, in the early 2000s, 
to the EDRN grants, the, the Early Diagnosis Research Network that started in the kind of 2010 range that have supported that then we now have taken over and resubmitted with Pierre's loss. All those sorts of things, you talk about 20 years worth of work, you had 10 years worth of infrastructure that was supported by the SPORE grants to allow us to develop the tissue banks and the repositories to be able to do this. And then over the course of the last decade, we've been able to develop the repositories and the relationships and the ability to take the repositories to other institutions so, so that you can have the blood samples, the imaging samples, and all those sorts of things to be able to do these complex cohort studies and start to look at it. Everybody likes the term big data, but big data is not cheap. And big data with specimens is really not cheap. I mean, we have, you know, five minus 80 freezers that are sitting, you know, right on the other side of me that are storing a lot of these specimens that we can do these things. That's not cheap. And that takes, that takes funding to be able to do that. And, um, but I think we have a lot of it. There's a lot of excitement now and there's a lot of positivity and we've, you know, we're, we're actually, you know, we felt like we've been pushing a rope up a hill and, and now we realize, okay, we don't just have a pile of rope up here. We actually have a, a structure that, that we can work from. And so hopefully we can get people to continue to, to, to donate to these endeavors, uh, both from a grant standpoint and a philanthropy standpoint to support, to support these processes. So I totally agree. I, I talk about this all the time because I've met so many researchers, you know, and I totally appreciate that this, that it doesn't just happen in, Labs have to raise money out for their own labs. They don't just get money. They have to fight for it. They have to write grants and grants, you know, a lot of them don't get approved. And, but you, but one thing you did mention, Eric, and I wanted to touch on, it was a good, a good transition. I wanted to ask about the white ribbon project, because when you mentioned breast cancer, we talked white ribbon project as a grassroots movement of, of advocates trying to change the public perception of lung cancer that anybody can get the, the disease. And we patterned ourselves after, the, the great work that the breast cancer community did and the HIV yep. community did to try to change the narrative. And so I wanted to ask you as a clinician researcher, what, what did you think and how did you feel when you first heard about it? Well, I, I love the idea. I mean, it, I, to be honest, if, if we, we've been trying to beat the door down on the academic side for decades and you've seen the slow progress that we've, we've undergone. So uh, when there's a grassroots movement, that's, that's, um, that is, Patient and family-driven, uh, as well as um, as well as just the the um, is really American people-driven. When that occurs, then there'll be enough inertia, uh, in my opinion, to be able to move the funding lines uh, where they need to go to get to that point. Uh, it's just it's a public perception piece uh, that really really matters. And so I, I absolutely love the concept. I mean, and, and um, I think we now now have uh, some and. and we now have some celebrities that are on board and, and you need that. You need to have people that are, that have that smile and charisma. I mean, I'm a scientist. I, I mean, I just, I struggle <laughs> just, to, just to raise my voice inflection. Right. So I'm not going to be out waving the flag or selling things, but uh, we have to have people that have, that have that sort of enthusiasm and, and level. And I, I just, I loved the energy when I was there. It was, it was fantastic uh, that I, I need that because I, I need that boost uh, so that we can, you know, you can head back to the long, desert sometimes that you're in when you're doing research and you feel like you're, you are pushing a rope up the hill and uh, it's, it's encouraging to feel like there's other people in the battle with you. Well, that day in Vanderbilt was inspiring to me and we need people like you and Christine and, and others um, all around the country, all around the world really now to join with us because we are all, all in this together. And so I, 
that what that inspires me as a patient, um, as a survivor, I can tell you what inspires me when I can stand with with you and and all those other folks in in Nashville and take this group photo and get our hands dirty, make making ribbons, and and I you know are standing at Dana Farber or Mass General where I live, you know, with Justin Gaynor and uh, um, Posse Johnny and 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 a bunch of other amazing people. Mm-hmm. So that inspires me. So I appreciate you. Um, you know, getting involved and supporting us. And I'll, I want to ask one last thing. I always ask my guests, um, every one of them, I don't not to put you on the spot, but outside of work, tell us something that you're passionate about, or maybe that people don't know about you. Um, well, I mean, I love my kids are all um, most of my kids all have different interests. I'm passionate about my kids. I have four children. Uh, so I, 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 I enjoy doing the stuff that they enjoy, and I really love the journey that they've taken me on. Uh, my oldest daughter um, was a soccer player, and I was not a soccer player, didn't know much about soccer. And we hopped on a journey for a decade with her with soccer, and so I, I love doing that. And, um, and then my sons, we actually enjoy hunting together. So I, I've loved, loved doing that with them and spending a lot of time in the, in the outdoors and hiking and uh, they do that. And then, then my other, my other daughter, uh, she, um, she's been into volleyball uh, and basketball. And so I was never a volleyball uh, person. I was always a tennis person. And so I've gotten to learn a lot about the sport of volleyball. So I've been, I've been passionate about uh, getting into the sports and activities of my children uh, and then also the outdoors. I really, I really love spending time uh, hunting and fishing and hiking and doing all those sorts of things. It kind of realigns, realigns me when I'm uh, when I'm outside. So, um, and then I, I would just, you know, my wife Melanie is, is we've been married for 25 years, and uh, actually, really, I think she still loves spending time with me. I'm a, kind of a, <laughs> I love spending time with her uh, and, and spending, you know, sharing our our uh, our really our, our combined goal of raising, of raising good, educated, um, kind, uh, kids. So we, we, we work very hard at that together. So. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing. And I, I couldn't agree with you more because what you just shared is exactly in, a, in alignment with, with my passions as well. And I've been on those journeys with my kids too, with, with yeah. you know, different sports. Lacrosse was the one that my kids played that I, I had no, I had nothing about lacrosse. So yeah. well, I've never, was, we haven't done that. Maybe, maybe my <laughs> youngest, uh, he's, uh, he's just turned 13. Maybe he'll get into lacrosse. He's, he might enjoy that. So that'd be yeah. good. Awesome. Well, Eric, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And it's really, um, thank you for all you do for the lung cancer community. Uh, and thanks for sharing about your exciting research. And um, we really appreciate everything that you do. And thanks again for being on the show. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to, to let everybody know what we're doing and uh, really look forward to seeing, uh, seeing the positive momentum that we can, uh, we can impact the, the field of lung cancer. So, Awesome. Thanks. All right. Have a great day. Thanks. Thanks.